welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and today we're crossing over to London in England again to catch up with Oliver Slipper, better known as Ollie. Welcome to the podcast, Ollie. Hi, Marcus. How are you? Great. Good to connect here again and uh, looking forward to spending a good hour plus here with you and digging deep into your exciting career, which you've had and still having, of course, by, uh, you know, the different roles you've played over those years. So, you know, most people will probably know you from your days with Perform, now Stats Perform, of course, as uh, one of the co-founders and, you know, longtime CEO of the company. And we're definitely going to be talking about it. And of course, we had some of your fellow colleagues there from John Glazier and Andrew Cooker uh, on the podcast before as well. So I'm sure we'll hear some other interesting angles from your side. Um, and then, of course, we'll touch on where you are now with Pitch International as executive chairman and plenty other roles you are still holding uh, in some executive, non-executive roles. And, of course, maybe other business if you've started over those uh, almost over two decades now in the industry. So should be fun. And I'm looking forward to hearing your stories. Um, and as always, as we always do, we start right at the beginning coming out of University of Manchester here in 98, I believe, uh, playing a bit of cricket here and there as well, and then starting with Accenture. Why don't you talk a bit about it? Yeah, well, I, you know, growing up, I was a very keen cricketer. I played in the Surrey youth teams from sort of under 16 and onwards and uh, had a very good few years in my last few years at school and was um, asked to sign professional terms when I left school. So I had a two-year contract and uh, which was, you know, I, I thought at that point I was on, uh, you know, an upward mission to be the, uh, you know, the future England captain. Sadly, it didn't quite work out as I had uh, envisioned in my dreams. But um, I, I had a brilliant couple of years playing professional cricket at Surrey, uh -huh. managed to get on tours to Australia, um, South Africa, met lots of friends for life. And I think uh -huh. if I look back on it, my sort of pint half full would say, um, you know, it was the it was it was the wrong time, the wrong place. There was such a talented squad, uh, and I found the transition from amateur cricket to professional cricket overnight a little bit of a struggle. Uh, the sort of the pint half empty version would say um, I just wasn't very good, um, <laughs> and uh, they found that out. And after a couple of years, uh, they released me, and I, you know, carried on playing cricket for the next twenty odd years, playing amateur cricket for Weybridge and stuff. But okay. it was a brilliant start to, you know, my sort of working life. And I think probably, you know, having that on my CV was certainly quite influential in me getting my job post university at Accenture on the graduate scheme. And you know, I when I certainly, if I look at my own hiring career i always look for team sportsmen because i think they they generally if you've played team sport to a relatively high level whether that's in your first team at school or university or you're still playing a high level of amateur team sport i think it gives you that sort of added edge over someone that hasn't done that because it it shows you can you can adapt you can get into a team and um yeah, you, you can you can you can be someone that is sort of social yet hardworking, and I think those are all the key traits uh, in hiring a, a young person. 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and on top, of, I mean, I would say even in general, sportsmen, even if you let's say play more an individual sport like tennis or cricket or uh, sorry, or, or golf or things like that, where it's maybe not as team focused, I think the the attributes coming in, um, if you played it at a senior level or at, at a higher level, you know, we've hired um, you know sportsmen over the years as well. I feel they always come with a bit of an edge, right? They 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 know how what it means to work hard and and really roll up their sleeve, right? Because that's what you have to do if you want to be, you know, uh, top of the top of your game. So I, I like that too. Uh, how old were you when you were playing the sort of pro t- pro cricket? What was sort of oh, age? 18, 19, 20. Right. Okay. Cool. Yeah. No. Awesome. So then you know, so you you finished. Your, so you, I guess you you did your university at the same time then um, while you're playing cricket. Is that how it works? Or I basically it overlapped a little bit in my first year of university, but no, it, I sort of I then. Um, when I was released by Surrey, I just cracked on and did university. I studied classical um, studies, which was sort of a hybrid of ancient history, Latin and Greek at Manchester, which right. certainly doesn't prepare you for a, a career in business or sport. But <laughs> it got me a degree and allowed me to um, get on the graduate scheme at uh, Accenture. So it was a sort of a means to an end, I guess. Yeah, nice, nice. Yeah, so let's talk Accenture. Big company. Uh, I think you, you started in sort of the media and entertainment part there, right? And obviously that led to the next things already. So how did that all flow? Yeah, by luck, really. So when you join Accenture, you get sent off to uh, Chicago to their training center for six weeks. And you, you're taught how to construct emails, how to write PowerPoint presentations, how to, you know, almost how to code um, computer languages and stuff like this. So it's it's like a sort of a mini MBA in uh, in six weeks, which is really helpful because I was very green and naive. And I don't think I'd even, you know, when I left university, I didn't own a mobile phone. I'd never had an email account of note. So actually just the basic, I didn't know how to use Excel, PowerPoint. Some people would still say I don't know how to use Excel, but um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, it gives you a crash course in being a sort of a young businessman. Yeah. Uh, and I, my first posting for a month or so was with Sony PlayStation around the launch of the first Sony PlayStation, oh. uh, which was fun. Uh, and then quickly afterwards, um, I got posted to NTL, which is this UK cable business now known as Virgin Media, and had a year doing all sorts of various roles there uh, as a consultant, which were from training engineers how to um, change their processes from uh, installing analog digital to analog pay TV to digital TV. Right. Uh, I worked in the call centers, teaching them the types of different complaints they'd have from digital TV, which they were just rolling out at the moment. Um, I did sort of vendor selection for their red button services from interactive games companies to betting, etc. So a whole range of stuff. And then um, sort of after a year or so, NTL um, entered into an agreement with a number of football clubs and uh, the Football League, and they created a business called Premium TV, a wholly owned little subsidiary to, um, I think the reason they created it in the first instance was to try and compete with Sky. So Sky were their main pay TV competitor, but they had all, they not only had the sort of platform, they also had the channels. So they were competing for, you know, the end customers, but then they were also selling NTL, the sports content and charging them a lot for it. So in NTL's wisdom, they started buying um, internet rights because they thought that would be the future and that would be how to take on Sky. Right. Uh, but it was sort of, this was pre-broadband. Um, so they were buying internet rights in a sort of a narrow bound world. And 
Um, I, I put my hand up as someone that was a huge sports fan, knew my football, so I was seconded onto that project. And my boss, who I know was a um, a colleague of yours for a while as well, a guy called Ian Eyre, who went on to following uh, TSA, went on to uh, run Liverpool, Liverpool, and now is um, is the CEO of the uh, Nashville MLS franchise. That's so great. he was my boss, and we went round and visited all 72 football clubs in the football league around about 10 premier league clubs and our goal was to convince them to move over to our website services we then launched the first ever streaming services in the uk where you could buy um you know for five pounds a month you could get live audio commentary stream to your to your website so if you lived outside of the radio commentary area so it was all really valuable learning um and you know, early, early yes. days of ott exactly didn't exist even at that time yeah so i was i can definitely say with some confidence i was a pioneer of the early streaming because i think it yeah. pretty much was the first streaming service out there and you know we had some successes we had way more failures i mean just you know, technical issues like you would never believe. Mm. We and we put in you know, sort of a couple of stories. We, I remember when the fixtures were released in probably two thousand and one. Um, we, we hadn't quite anticipated the amount of traffic that comes to the websites on the day that fixture release day, and I think our websites were down for three days, uh, which oh, was wow. that was some kind of a major record. Yeah. Um, we always had uh, so we used to run. Um, the Rangers, which you know, the Glasgow Football yeah. Club streaming service, and Sean Connery, who at that point in his life lived in um, either Barbados or Bahamas, he had a bat phone to me. So every Saturday he would call with his sort of tech problems trying to get onto the um, <laughs> audio streaming service. So I had a you know, one-way communication <laughs> yeah, with James Bond. Serious customer service, sir. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, many more screw-ups, but an amazing time, total chaos. Um, <laughs> you know, you were doing... You know, my job was commercial manager, but I was a product manager. I was an IT manager, tech. You know, you did everything. It was a small startup, and it was it was brilliant fun. But, but it was. But you said it was a subsidiary of NTL still at that time, right? Or at that time. So this was sort of when would this have been? Two thousand, two thousand and one, two thousand and two. Right. Um, and then, so halfway through my sort of first year, seconded to Accenture. I, Ian said, you know, rather than pay you. Accenture a thousand pounds a day for your time. Why don't I sort of give you a deal and come and work straight for me? So I did that and joined the team full time. And then sort of crafting, I think chronologically, probably around the end of 2001, 2002, the parent company um, went into bankruptcy. Um, so NTL started, you know, following the dot com crash, right. um, started to breach its debt covenants. Um, and and so the whole business was then taken over by effectively the bondholders um, who were a bunch of sort of US, what they call vulture funds, who mm. then acquired the debt for, you know, cents in the dollar. Okay, so we suddenly had new bosses and they're, um, it could have closed premium TV down. They would have done in a set in a heartbeat because it was a pretty poor business. Um, I think we had guarantees to football clubs uh, to run their websites, you know, to the tune of sort of 10 to 15 million pounds, yet we were making around about a million of revenue. Uh, and that, that uh, 
that came pretty much from a single betting deal with Bet365 and, and uh, you know, tens of thousands of subscribers to an audio streaming service. So the economics of the business were totally flawed. But the thing that saved it was the Football League, in their wisdom, had negotiated a parent company guarantee. Um, so they okay. they were unable to effectively close it down because it would have meant that they would have never been able to restructure the debt and, you know, and effectively turn NTL to what it is now into Virgin Media. So we were fortunate to, you know, have a stay of execution by um, dint of the parent company guarantee. But at that time, so the likes of Ian Eyre, you know, he, he didn't want to, you know, he was focused on sort of growth and being in a growth business. And mm. I think came and joined you at some point in the um, the heady days of the, um, you know, the Asian sports yeah. rights industry. Um, and I, I saw that as my opportunity as a relatively uh, sort of young, but probably internally quite influential member of staff to pitch to the bondholders that I should, I should run this business. The, the way out of this is to renegotiate all of the deals with the, uh, the Football League and the Premier League clubs. Um, and if you can give me a year or two, I can get this business to break in. It doesn't mess up. Right. Yeah, exactly. So myself and a, and a guy called Rod Henwood, who at that time, he was dropped in as the CEO for a year or two from sort of 2002 to 2003. We went round, we kept the lights on, we sold, you know, we had a stake at 9.9% in Aston Villa. Oh, um, right. and this is one of the deals that, you know, it's probably one of your best deals and worst deals. So we... Uh, we had about a month's worth of cash left, and we so we needed to raise money. So, Aston, we approached Aston Villa about selling our state back, which they seemed rather keen to do. So, we sold our 9.9% for 2.4 million, which gave us a sort of a year of runway, which was great. But um, about three weeks after us selling our 9.9 for 2.4, they sold the club for 65 million. So, uh, <laughs> Deadly Doug, as he was known as the owner, he certainly had the last laugh there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I was going to say that sounded cheap, but I, you know, this is 20 years ago, but uh, um, they're probably they're a lot more worse now for sure. Uh, yeah, that's an, so, but, and I do vaguely remember some of that actually, uh, you know, when, when I guess the early days there uh, of premium TV. Um, so you're basically restructuring everything. Um, how does that then eventually, you know, after you then keep running it for a couple more years, um, how does that sort of then lead into the next step, which I guess is, you know, partnering up with the next group there in form. And of course, perform then kind of comes out of that. Um, what is sort yeah. of the next connection there? Well, so from sort of, I guess it probably time-wise at around 2004, 2005, we'd restructured off football league and premier league deals we'd sold back the stakes in the company in the in the in the uh, like the likes of newcastle leicester city rangers in return for reducing our guarantees and actually getting paid to run the various digital services with the football league mm. we um we turned the business from a sort of a rights owner to a service provider business with a small revenue share and so, yeah, things were turning around. And I, I think we probably got to break even in 2004, relatively you know, modest turnover, probably two and a half million of turnover. And that's where we really started to think right now. We've had, what we are is the pioneers of digital services on the Internet. We had the probably number one um, streaming, uh, streaming platform outside of Major League Baseball in the world in terms of the volume of customers we we're putting through the business. And... 
I guess there's probably there's one or two key things. I remember we were tendering for Racing UK, the, the UK sort of horse racing, horse racing. Uh, mm-hmm. business to run their streaming services because they had an idea to supply horse races to the online bookmakers. Yep. And we, we were successful in winning that. Right. Um, and that was really the sort of light bulb moment because we saw then that bookmakers were willing to pay uh, to, to show live streaming of horse races on their websites. Yep. And so if they're willing to do that, surely they might look at football, basketball, tennis, yep. etc. So I started working with Simon Denyer, who had recently left IMG, was sort of a competitor really at IMG. Uh, he was running the digital uh, division there. And uh, we, we sort of created a couple of partnerships on the streaming side. He went and acquired rights and then we, obviously, with our bookmaker integrations, then supplied all of that content into the into the betting websites. And there was a probably so winning that race in UK thing was critical. And then Bet three six five, who were you know our partner on the football league betting websites, Simon and I, I remember probably it was around two thousand and four, went to see John Coates, the uh, CEO of uh, of Bet three six five, and pitched him an idea of all this other football and. I remember he sort of quick at the end of the meeting said, right, I'm in. Mm. Um, and that really, so so we were so intrinsically linked as businesses, we did, then needed to find a way of sort of putting the two together because ultimately we'd have ended up probably competing against each other if we hadn't sort of merged. Right. So we, I'm trying to think, yeah, the Croker um, then came into the picture because he had called me some probably months earlier saying sport five are interested in acquiring um uh, premium tv uh now that sounded good but i didn't really want to go and work for sport five as like the head of the head of digital within a big sports trading agency i felt that we had a much bigger chance of building a big business on our own so i then challenged him i was like listen we don't want to um uh, join sport five but if you can find some money um Simon and I would like, you know, we can use that to pay off my old shareholders. Simon would put his business with his partners like John Gleesher and Steph into into a new entity. And and I think we're in we're in really very good shape to sort of create uh, I guess a new sector within the sports rights space. So Croker, as he does, went and met uh <laughs> amounts of people um and then came back to us and in relatively short order and said, right, I've met this guy called Jorg Mohart, who run, who is just about to leave Providence Equity Partners to join Access Industries, Len Blavatnik's investment arm, uh, with a view to investing in sports, tech, and entertainment. Right. So I remember the sort of day after we met him at Andrew's kitchen table, and he's like, yeah, I'm in. Um, and within literally two or three weeks, I agreed the deal with our old um, vulture funds. I think we paid them twenty-five million pounds to buy out, um, to buy them out. We then merged business with Simons, and you know the rest is history, really. And so Croaks, sort of Croaks, myself and Simon with with John were, you know, the founders of of Perform, which was the sort of next five years of my life. Yeah, no, I love it. Uh, it it's great. It's definitely uh, some parts there which we hadn't really heard in that sort of fashion uh, from the others. So that, that's really interesting. Um, now, you were, I think, if I 
got it right. You were the joint CEO, right? Um, obviously, during that uh, time with uh, with Perform. Um, talk about through this a bit uh, from your point of view, you know, how, you know, and you've already sort of teed it up really nicely here in terms of what was the business and what you saw that, you know, there are bookmakers, you know, just in the UK, but I guess around the world who are keen on content and you guys are now providing that service and, you know, delivering the stream on the back end of it, which was really, I guess, how it all, you know, what really was the, the main business for a very long time, right? If I understood that correctly. Yeah, it, certainly in the first instance, there were two real parts to our business. There were tech services. So we continued to run the websites and the streaming services for the likes of the Football League, various Premier League clubs. We expanded our uh, range of uh, partners to the likes of the ATP Tennis Tour, um, the WTA um, World Rally Championship. And actually, one of our when we were going to acquire rights for streaming services for the bookmakers, we, we said, well, given the fact that we're ingesting all of this content, we are encoding it, mm. we have the technical capability to um, run these digital services, why don't we also build and run your own OTT service or your own sort of web and mobile streaming right. services? So it was a sort of a combined pitch of right. we'll help you create tennis TV or, you know, FEI TV or squash TV, whatever it was, mm. and then exploit your rights worldwide for uh, the purposes of internet betting. So it was a sort of a dual sale. So those were the two parts of the business. Quite quickly, the betting side of the business, uh, you know, it looked that that was really the key growth driver. And I think we put our business together in 2007 and we pretty much doubled revenue every year for the first, uh, for the first four years. So we went from 10 million combined sort of premium TV and informed turnover in 2007. It was 20 in 2008, 50 in 2009, 100 in 2010. So wow. it was an amazing period of um, of growth. And that ultimately led to us, you know, providing a, a sort of a partial exit to the shareholders through an IPO in, in 2011. Yeah, correct. As I remember, we had that conversation about the IPO, which sort of you know worked, and then it, you guys took it back off again, right? Um, for whatever other reasons, maybe we'll talk about it in a, a later. But uh, now, this the growth which you see there. Um, again, there are companies who grow that speed, and they still lose a ton of money. Uh, I'm assuming because of the way the business model was structured, you guys were fairly highly profitable in that area. Uh, is that correct, or? Yeah, we, we never so we never ever in that period of time from 2007 access provided the finance to acquire my old premium TV shareholders. Um, and from that moment, we never once uh, needed any further investment. Right. So we okay. self funded all of our growth through to the IPO. Yeah. Uh, and then the IPO became it was a slightly different story because, you know, we used the funds from the IPO and the liquidity that a public listing gives you to acquire other businesses and through part cash, part shares, et cetera. Mm. Yeah, cool. Um, again, the, um, you know, I was on the, you know, like an IMG, the you know, the, the sports fives of the world. We were trading rights, um, representing agent uh, rights holders, and, of course, selling uh, the data or the uh, uh, the betting rights was always it only, you know, was a small piece of the puzzle. Uh, in some cases, it became larger and larger over a period of time. Um, but in, in your case, obviously, you are the one who buying the rights and then rebundling it and then, I guess, selling it off to whatever, 100 different rights holders, right? Uh, sorry, right, uh, platform owners. 
So, mm. you know, and it's, you know, where is the is the margin in it in terms of buying it at the right price and then obviously multiplying it out or how you guys were compensated by by these uh, platform owners? Yeah, the I guess the the key to the economics there were having probably the the, the higher profile the right the the lower margin it was in isolation but in sort of aggregation if we were able to acquire i don't know let's say philippines basketball for a hundred dollars a match and we might have made a sort of a 500 percent margin on that right. but you know syria we were making a 15 percent margin on but actually in the combination of all the content together gave the bookmakers a 365 day a year 24 7 streaming service yep. and so you know where that's really the, the key to it was ensuring that you had content every hour of every day so that if someone logged onto a betting website and didn't have a specific idea of what they wanted to have a bet on they could just say oh there's some you know there's some ice hockey from finland i'll oh, have a look at that i might have a bet yep. um and that's that was the I guess that was the beauty of the business model. We were able to, we, we didn't sell anything in isolation. So if if we had been forced to go and just sell like a traditional agency model had been, let's say, you know, you have five sets of rights. I want to sell Bet365 Filipino basketball. They would have no interest whatsoever because they need, they would need someone to provide that in an encoded format uh, integrated into their video player. So what we did is, create a massive content and sell it as an entire package. So bookmakers would come in and I think our minimum commitment by sort of 2011, 2012 was to take 10,000 events of us. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, again, I'm assuming you get, you're not really taking risk when you buy the rights because you already know that, that you have the taker on the other side, right? So it's not about you, you don't really have to play the arbitrage game as much as just bringing the content in for, for the right price. Is that correct? Um, certainly in the early days, you know, when, you know, we were fortunate really that the real period of growth for Perform was 2008, 9, 10. Hmm. And that sort of coincided with the financial crash. So the sort of, we had very little competition. So we were able to sort of acquire rights pretty um pretty aggressively because quite more often than not we might have been the only person out there talking to them right as as the sort of the market cottoned on and sport radar got involved um uh, you know img had the, some service like that IMG, as well, right? genius or whoever the other people are then you know it became a, a much more competitive market and you needed to be extremely careful on you know what you paid for rights and trying to, to calculate your margin. One of the big, I mean, one of the key things is bookmakers don't like a huge amount of concurrency of volume of matches. So for them, there's diminishing, you've got 10 games on at the same time, there's almost a diminishing return because people aren't looking to, they're not, for a lot of the sort of content we were providing, they weren't looking, I'm not specifically going on to try and find a, you know, a Portuguese division one football game. I just want to know that there's four or five things on there at any one time that I can have a bet on, mm. uh, certainly with some of the smaller sports. So you need to be careful that you acquired in the right time frames so that bookmakers didn't have lots of other content going up against it. Yeah. 
Well, that makes sense. Yeah, that, that makes complete sense. Uh, and do you guys ever take, um, you know, what do you call it, affiliate revenues of the bookmakers too? Or is it just a pure straightforward service as here is the feed, you pay me X? No, we, I mean, it, the problem is the bookmakers that would have wanted to have done uh, structured deals like that are the bookmakers you wouldn't want to do deals like that with because they weren't, <laughs> okay. they were probably the, they didn't the, have the money. Convinced their product wasn't quite good enough, but they were having to buy the service to be competitive with the really good ones. And then the good ones, you know, whether it's the Bet365s or Unibets or whoever it is, they don't want to give you a profit share because they don't want you seeing how much you're making on their um, exactly. on their, So well, that makes sense. Yeah, we avoided that. Yeah, uh, no, interesting. Uh, now, I remember the, the there was the WTA deal, uh, which was – so at least my recollection, one of the first ones where all of a sudden Perform was no longer just buying betting, but you bought all the rights, right? And then subsequently, I think I think you maybe passed someone to an agency to to actually monetize it, but you were in essence the true rights holder of the whole block. Is that you know? You might have done other deals prior to that, but I recall that one as one of the bigger ones, which obviously was well documented. Um, so that shifted a bit, of course, the the mindset. What, where what what was the idea or strategy behind that? Well, the the strategy, I, I can remember it very clearly. I, we were, Simon and I were having lunch in Sunbury Cross and we were looking at, we were bidding to try and renew our WTA rights. Mm. And I, I, I said to him, we should just buy everything here because we, um, we're more than 50% of the global revenue. And the problem is they would, they would have gone off and done, you know, a Sky deal, a whatever it is, an ESPN deal, a Fox deal, and then, you know, then historically, then they would try and do the, the betting deal at the end. And actually, I just thought that that's the time where we should be aggressive. We're the, we're the biggest buyer of this content in the world. We should take a dominant primary position. Um, and actually, it's worked out. It worked out brilliantly. Now, it needed us to sort of skill up from a distribution perspective because, you know, whilst the betting was great revenue for them, it, it's not as a brand enhancer and you know, for them, distribution and eyeballs is so critical, in particular for the women's game. But I think you know we did a brilliant job on that. Uh, like so Alex Rice ran that project for a long time, who's you know the chief rights officer at Stats Perform now. And you know, I think when we look back on it historically, they would have just done a deal with Eurosport, and you know, you know the Eurosport game. It's like you know, claim to have two hundred million households, but. Um, uh, you, you know, I think that's more like, uh, you know, in terms of when you actually get into the viewing figures, pretty small. So yeah. moving to a market by market approach that we did um, certainly, I think, helped them grow their eyeballs and their revenues. Mm -hmm. you, you did that with a few others as well after? I don't, know, I don't remember. Yeah. So in my time, so when I, I stepped down in early 2015, we did that with Fever as well. So they were the main, they were the, so we, we structured a deal acquiring the fever rights i think through to the 2036 or something like that so um a, a very similar structure to the wta deal but yeah those were the two main ones i think latterly they've done similar ones with um maybe ice hockey or no handball sorry um but yeah it's a very interesting model and it's one i think we'll continue to see more of mm. Now, obviously, let's we can move sort of a bit along, um, and again, it may be already uh, after you had left, but I'm certain you know still being involved in in other forms as a maybe non-executive director or sole shareholder. You would know all these stories 
obviously there was a point in time then when the company really started to look at the world differently, right? And, you know, the word the zone started to appear um, and getting directly into a direct-to-consumer um, environment, which is very different than, you know, obviously selling to a bunch of uh, um, gaming platforms. So where do, where do you say, see that transition? Was it everyone saw what Netflix is doing and thinking, oh, man, we can do this too, and sports is, of course, great content to do it with? Or what was the sort of, from your point of view, the, the, the aha moment there? It was driven by two things. So it was driven by this, you know, the massive success of Netflix and the way that Netflix, you know, starting as a DVD service and then launching streaming in the U.S., um, to some, you know, to, to significant successes and then rolling out extremely quickly worldwide. I think that intrigued us. Mm. And then the other, um, the, the other, I guess, driver behind the DAZN launch was looking at various markets around the world where pay TV, you know, was still dominated by a single player um, or, or a sort of a very cosy duopoly. And so we were looking, we thought that there was, our, our strategy there was we should go into markets where, it, you know, rights inflation hasn't ever really kicked off, disrupt the market, create a streaming service. And if we can do that in three or four key markets, then we might get the rights buying muscle to start taking a look at rights from a global perspective. Um, so that was, I guess, it was it was looking at distressed media sports media rights markets and the success of netflix and sort of combining those two factors to uh, look at launching design mm. that makes sense uh, let's just a more technical question a bit you know latency um you know delivering live stream content over the over the internet um yeah, it's getting easier now and one day with 5g it'd be you know fairly standard stuff but uh again the, the days when you started and i'm not talking all the way in 2002 where we talked about earlier but even you know in the you know 10 years ago um it wasn't always as simple as it sounds like um you know and we, when we launched our own ott platform you know even we saw those challenges there when you deal with these um betting companies um you know, you obviously can't do in-game betting unless there is no latency or you just get you know, get hammered. Um, how did that actually work? You know, how do you guys overcome that? Or there, there was no in-game betting; it was just purely betting on on regular odds, etc. No, it was. I mean, we we spent a huge amount of time and effort working on uh, latency reduction. Um, we used a technology called flash streaming um, that would be suitable for large screen um ultra hd um streams etc but it was perfect for the bookmakers so in limited size uh, windows you know the the likes of a you know a mobile phone um half screen mobile phone or a a quarter screen uh, mac sort of window the streaming quality was fine and the latency we got down to i'm going to say four or five seconds which which was, you know, comparable in many ways to the satellite television mm -hmm. feed. So worked perfectly well. The, I mean, the only sports that in the early days we kind of struggled with the sports that were so quick, um, the likes of you, the likes of certain darts players through the through the darts extremely quickly, and which made trading the the match um, the the sort of current game or the current. Uh, leg quite difficult, right. so you were just, the bookmakers adjusted it and would trade the next leg. But mm. no, generally 
we 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 found that was fine. Actually, in from a design perspective, I know one of their early challenges was was latency as well. Believe it or not, because people, you know, have mobile phone alerts and that that might come. Let's say if the HD stream was a thirty second latent stream, you'd be getting your alerts quicker than. Um, the gulps Correct. are being scored, and, and that's quite a frustrating user experience. Absolutely. But uh, I haven't caught up with it recently. I'm sure you know the world and its dog as you know live streaming becomes much more uh, important. Is working on latency, and yeah. you know I'm sure technologies <laughs> will bring that down. Yeah, just to stay for a minute, maybe on, on the zone here before we move on. Um, and I know you're not directly involved, but you know being part of the industry and, and clearly being a founding member of the the company uh, before. What do you think has worked and hasn't worked? Uh, looking at the business model now, where it, you know billions of dollars been you know sunk into it. Um, you know, I've had my own little experience with when we launched Sports Fix, which was like a mini version of what the Zone is. Um, you know, we had the same experience. You know, they, we ran out of money, uh, which the Zone hasn't necessarily yet, but uh, obviously keep pouring money into it to to keep moving. And, you know, I've I've had some other conversation before where you know we compared it a bit to Sky Sports, uh, which I think took ten years before they made ever any money, and now of course it is a, you know, it's a huge business and, and very profitable. What, how do you how would you look at it? Uh, what do you think it's the runway and or the end you know the, the end game here? I think I'm pretty sure that the end game for Access will be an IPO or a trade sale, and I'm. I would have thought they're probably quite focused on that within the next three years. Um, I'm not. I'm not close enough to the business to to know that. But what they have done is build scale from a multi-sport, multinational streaming service in the sports space like no one else has. Right. So they are an extreme. Whilst it's been a very cash consumptive business over the last six or seven years, because as you say, you know, launching sports. Uh, services, whether that is traditional pay TV, you know, you'll see it with the likes of BT or Sky, or whether it is a global sports streaming service, is a very expensive game because yep. there are incumbent operators that will fight for their lives and drive up rights fees to protect their position. So it's not, it's it's far from a, a very easy, um, a very easy thing to get profitable quickly. But they've built a brand. They've built a, a, a global streaming platform that, in its in its own way, has incredible value from a tech perspective. And they've got, you know, well north of 10 million subscribers. So they're um, they're a very interesting proposition. Whether that's a public market proposition or whether that is a, uh, you know, a trade sale to one of the major U.S. properties or something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Were you around when they came up with the name The Zone? I was on. I was a non-exec director. Um, I have to say, it wasn't. Um, I wasn't massively uh, in favour of it because <laughs> I, whenever I asked people, they they pronounced it differently. But um, they, um, I was convinced by by James Rushton, who's a you know a great friend. That after he said that intrigue of not knowing exactly how the name is pronounced is not a bad thing in the first instance. And once you've got global scale, everyone knows how to pronounce it. And actually, I've been proved totally wrong on that because when you hear, you know, whereas probably four or five years ago, people were calling it Dazun, Dazen, yeah. uh, Dazen, 
Um, I pretty much universally hear them call it DAZN now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I think yeah, yeah it, it took a while to, to get that name right, that's for sure, uh, when you first see it. Um, interesting. Now, when, again, uh, were you, w did you leave before the split of Stats Perform and DAZN, or were you still around at that time as well? Yeah, I, I left when um, we were delisted from a public market uh, perspective. So, um, Access certainly had the view that uh, we were undervalued on the public market. I think, you know, we were a sort of $750 million market cap business. Mm. Um, they felt that we would be much more valuable as a, um, a private company again. And equally, they were just starting to think about DAZN and the UK public market in particular is is quite a conservative platform. They wouldn't have liked um, being invested in a business that was, you know, making fifty to sixty million dollars of um, of operating profit when we delisted to suddenly losing a, a few hundred million dollars as we invested in an OTT thing. So, right. Len and Simon's view was let's let's take the business uh, private, and you know, quite frankly, I'd done sort of 15 years at the zone of which about 10 or 11 I'd been running the business and I just felt that I needed a um, a bit of a break and to do something different I missed uh, I missed this uh, what I call sort of small business mentality so whilst it was just an unbelievable ride for a few years when I left I think we had 2,000 employees um, and I, I kind of like um, I like that earlier stage of the business where you can walk out of your office and know who everyone is yeah. uh, and know a little bit more about them just than that's Dave from accounts or that's Pete from <laughs> product management. So, um, yeah, it was it was just good timing for me. Uh, I stayed on the board for a few years. And then when I uh, took the pitch job, um, I felt there was probably a conflict of interest. So I decided to um, hand in my um, notice as a board director and uh, you know leave the likes of James Rushton and you know whoever the current crew are running the business there to hopefully take it on and uh, achieve some kind of an exit as I'm I'm still a small shareholder in some in some way or another. Mm. Yeah, amazing. No, I mean uh, great, and, and I think we we, co we covered some good good new things which we hadn't heard so far. So I think we've we uh, did a, we had a nice run around the perform world here. So let's talk live after perform. Uh, you already mentioned it, Pitch International. Uh, but you also, like you said earlier, uh, you like the kind of startup environment. So you did found a couple of companies. I think you were a founder of Pick Guru and a co-founder of Masumo. Uh, let's talk a bit about that. Let's talk a bit about the companies. And, and I believe one of them, again, you already sold again. So it sounds like there's some good stories there as well. Yeah. So when I um, uh, left Perform, uh, I'd... Um, been working with a guy called Erdem Yerdener, who whose business I'd acquired um, was the leading sports website in Turkey, and he, he was an amazing entrepreneur. And his earnout was coming to an end at about the same time that I was thinking of leaving following the delisting. And we started talking, mm -hmm. uh, and we had an idea for a um, a puzzle-based uh, mobile phone game. And I think it was probably driven. I was getting the train up to work and all I ever saw people doing was playing Candy Crush. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. well, we're missing a trick here. So we created a game called Draw Path. It's still in the app stores now. Okay. Um, and it was a multi, It was a sort of a social multiplayer puzzle game. I, I 
I still play it every single day of my life. Um, the challenge was there weren't the tens of thousands or millions of players that agreed with me how good a game it was. So ultimately, it didn't really work. Um, but what we had done, sort of using my network, um, you know, following sort of the heady days form, knowing the people at Google, Apple, the App Store, all these sort of people, we, we built ourselves a sort of what I would call a very valuable network in the games sort of ecosystem and we Erdem and I met another um, game studio called um, called Ismo um, who had a really interesting football game called Headball okay. and I think at that time we'd sort of sadly acknowledged that our own game probably wasn't going to scale to the heights we needed it to and um, so we said to Ibrahim the owner of, uh, of um, Headball why don't you merge with us we'll leave the cash in the business that we've raised we've got the connections with corporate finance the app stores etc you've got a brilliant game studio and you know, know how to build a sticky sports game for the sort of the global audience right. and we did that and it was just an amazing story. You know, we were we had a small team based in the UK in a, an executive box at Surrey County Cricket Club and 30-odd people based in um, Izmir in um, southern Turkey. And over a period of sort of two or three years, revenue started to, um, you know, really grow quickly. Um, we started getting some um, interest, some corporate interest. So, um Eventually, so that we started in 2016 and we'd sold the business by 2019. Um, you know, it's a business that that makes, you know, tens of millions of revenue, wow. tens of millions of, um, of EBITDA, a fantastic business. And, you know, almost sadly, uh, the, the final paint or the final final earnout uh, finished at the end of uh, 2021. So we're now no longer involved. Um if any game studios are out there are looking for um, uh, investment and have got a sticky game, you know, give me a call because it's an it's an amazing it's an amazing sector and one with a very small team, you can grow very quickly. I mean, I think mm. when you think about the struggles of getting sports streaming services downloaded, to give you a, um, an interesting stat, we we had over two hundred million global app downloads in a four year period. Wow. Um, so of, of headball, this is the particular game yeah, we're talking so, about. Wow! Yeah, so we, you know, we reached million downloads. Yeah, that's huge. We reached a very significant, you know, part of the world's population. But that that is that is very large. I mean, if you take it, if you look at the big games like Fortnite or you know others in that similar sort of mobile space, they are for five hundred million downloads. So at two hundred million, that is, yeah, you right in the in the in the mix there. So I can see how you're talking about tens of millions of revenue. The revenue stream um, is you have to is it a free to play game and you purchase stuff inside or is you have to is a subscription game. Uh, 50 50 advertising and um, in-app purchases okay right so what, what do you buy in the app you buy skins and things or what, you what buy do you skins. buy yeah so you upgrade your you know you you upgrade your players boots to get you more power in your kick you upgrade your it. players hat to give you a you know a, a harder header that uh, sort of thing okay yeah Okay, I got it. Cool. Oh yeah, I gotta go check it out. I have to admit, I'm not one of the 200 million yet, but uh, I will go download it later. Uh, that's very cool. Um, I didn't know you were part of that. So again, besides being, I guess, one of the co-founders and, and helping put it together, what what is the sort of other maybe some learnings there uh, you have from it? Um, you know, how did you 
how did you drive the the global growth um is it organic is it you know you do certain marketing in the digital space or how do you really make sure that all of a sudden you have the, that these huge audiences there uh, well the the key to having a successful mobile game is something called k factor so for every um user you acquire via yeah, the, the, most of our users came through three different ways, uh, Instagram, Facebook, or programmatic. So you're, you're, you're buying advertising and you're trying to acquire a user at around a one pound, uh, one pound per install. Mm -hmm. And then the key to a strong success from a games perspective is every, you want every single user that you pay for to get you at least half a user through word of mouth. Okay. Um, and if you can do that, you're onto something. And then there's sort of, then the, I guess the tsunami effect is if you can then get big enough. So you get on the app store charts. Right. So you, so you want to then try and sort of get into, um, you know, the top tens or top twenties for puzzle games and that sort of thing. And if you can do that, then people will find you organically as well. So it's, I, I just learned everything. I knew nothing about the app economy and, through you know through those sort of two or three years working with my Turkish colleagues there it was just brilliant and yeah, learned to you yeah I'm I'm quite deep into the gaming and esports space over the last several years as well and less a bit on the on the game developer side as what you're talking about here but in, in other areas and it, it is a fascinating space and and there is some overlap of course again to the traditional sports world in some in many ways so it's it's definitely a, an exciting area to be in yeah let's we'll talk about the more about it in the future but let, let's touch on a few other ones uh, I mean this is clearly a great story we could spend more time there but I know there's a few other things I wanted to cover here uh, let's talk about pick guru that's another fun one here from the at least looks of it of what you guys are doing yeah so we um during lockdown um i was with my um colleague john owen who is the founder of pitch and we were in the office we weren't not many of us were in and we were looking forward to the masters uh the sort of in 2000 and when would it have been november 2020 the rescheduled masters from the one that was called off earlier in the year mm -hmm. and we decided to sort of create a um a spreadsheet based competition so we sent it to a few colleagues and a few mates said right it's 50 pounds to enter um what you have to do is we've categorized the golfers into eight different categories um there's like the former winners the uh major champions Ryder cup legends uh top asian players etc mm -hmm. you pick one for each category and the person whose eight picks had the combined lowest finishing position would win the pot right. okay and it went viral and so the <laughs> night uh you know we, we sent it out to a few mates and the next thing i knew i had thirty thousand quid transferred into my account from the majority of people i had no idea who they wow. were um, the first I, you know, we'd anticipated this might be a thousand quid and we gave, I think we gave 50% to the winner, 30% to second and 20% uh, to third or something. And uh, it just went viral. So John and I and uh, John Yule, who's another of the pitch uh, co-founders and is the legal counsel, started to think about this as, you know, surely there's a business here. And um we we found uh, a couple of guys, one of whom was an ex-colleague of mine from Perform, who had been pitching a sports social betting idea to, to various people. Mm -hmm. And we convinced them to ditch their product and build Pick Guru. Right. So 
we launched at the start of this year. Um, you know, we're, we're six weeks into um, being a live game okay. or live product. Okay. Um, got a big build up to the Masters um, in uh, April this year. So if anyone, uh, we've got the Players' Championship. I'm not sure when this podcast will go out, Marcus, but the Players' Championship starts tomorrow. So we've got sort of a £2,000 guaranteed uh, game for the players. We're launching our very own version of uh, paid fantasy. So we'll have um, really interesting paid fantasy games. We'll do season predictors for things like the Premier League, Champions League, top European League. So it's it's going to be the whole ethos of the game, of, of the app, is sports predictions w- w- amongst your mates with a few pounds or dollars to make it more fun. Right. And and you know, so far our user feedback has been phenomenal. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that you know we're onto something here. So where do you find it? Is it pickguru.com or you have it? Is an app already itself? It's an app only at the moment. So okay. pickguru, all one word, and you can get that in uh, Google Play or the App Store. Right, got it. Cool. At, the, right. the only thing I'd say is at the moment we only have a UK license. Got so. It'll take us, uh, you know, a year or two to start expanding our footprint globally. But right now, it's a UK product. But anyone that's listening and wants to have a go, and let me know your thoughts. Yeah, definitely. We'll go have a look at it. That's cool. So let's let's cut. That's uh, you know maybe uh, as we wrapping up sort of the 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 business part of it here. Of course, we got to talk about Pitch International, which you joined a couple of years ago as the executive chairman. Executive chairman only means you're actually doing some work from the sound of it, right? Um, you're not just there as a, as the sort of honorary man. Um, so what exactly are you doing and or, of course, tell us a bit the latest on pitch and all the good stuff you guys are up to. Uh, yeah, so when I say exec chairman, I, I'm really running the business. So John, uh, John Owen, who's the founder and myself, probably quite a similar scenario to Simon and myself in Perform Days. We run the business together. We we share an office. We we talk, you know, most of the day about, you know, how we grow it, where to take the business. It, it is a phenomenal business, um, one that sort of almost creeps under the radar because I think pitch is mantra over the, um, over the last 20 years since it was founded was, was to sort of, let let our clients take the glory, stay under the radar, don't raise our head above the parapet and just deliver well for both broadcasters and rights holders. And it, it's been a business that has has done that extremely well. Um, you know, in a in a period of time where we've seen, you know, agencies make huge mistakes, whether, you know, it's like overbuying rights, agencies, you know, in a in a competing against the global broadcasters thinking that they'd have leverage and we've seen the demise of the likes of MP Silver. Um, We've also seen, you know, some of the bigger agencies make massive errors on major rights, uh, you know, major rights acquisitions. And so Pitch has just continued uh, to to grow steadily to build an extremely robust um, business that delivers for rights holders. And it's been you know, I've just absolutely loved every moment of the last, it's nearly four years, bizarrely. Mm. Um, I joined in 1st of October 2018. So I've loved, I've loved those times. We're, we're um, around about 70 people, uh, mostly UK based. So it's a, it's a nice size business. Um, I think if you looked at our, our revenue per capita, we would be, you know, punching well above our weights in, in, you know, compared to almost any business in the world. So it's, it's really, it's a great business that 
Its main focus is uh, media rights. Um, so we're the, uh, you know, I'd say we're the leading seller of domestic English football around the world with our partnerships with the EFL and the, and, and the Football League. Uh, we're the, the leading cricket agency in the world, so represent four or five of the major cricket boards, uh, helping them distribute their content worldwide. And then we're, you know, the number one Northern Hemisphere rugby agency, so selling the Six Nations, oh, yeah. Autumn Internationals and the UK's uh, Premiership rugby product around the world. And then increasingly starting to um, make some real inroads in um uh, in golf, uh, we have two of the four majors now, and and something that I'm particularly proud of in women's sport. So, one of my first things to um, that we did when I came in was invest in a in a women's sport infrastructure. We could see that you know interest levels were growing, mm. uh, revenue was 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 still some way behind um, where we thought it could get to, and. We um, we invested in a team of people before we had any revenue to to sort of have the right level of uh, data science analysis distribution and it, and it's proved extremely successful. So we now sell the Barclays uh, Women's Super League yeah. around the world. We have centralised a whole package of uh, international women's football for sort of World Cup qualifiers. We work with England cricket on their women's content around the world. New Zealand cricket. West Indies cricket plus, you know, the um, South American football, um, Commonable, um, Six Nations rugby. So we really are the sort of dominant global women's sports agency around the world. But it's been brilliant to see the rise of that. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think there's a, there's a huge op opportunities for sure in women's sport, and, and it's great to see someone is uh, also putting some muscle behind it, like you guys doing. And that's awesome. I mean, you know, pitch always been. Uh, you know, we've we've all worked together before uh, on some content you you guys owned, um, and uh, and it's and I'm also really happy to hear that there is still money in the media agency business, um, as that we're sort of out of it, and because we either got out muscled by the big boys, or of course in many cases rights holders have taken their rights in house, and I just felt it wasn't there wasn't a good business anymore, at least from what we were doing as TSA. Uh, but I'm really good, glad to hear that there are still others out there doing what we've done for 20 years as well. There, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that probably from a TSA perspective, you know, Asia is definitely the most challenging part of the world right now for you know, any agency or or generally any sports rights holder. So your exposure to that part of the world probably wasn't particularly helpful. Yeah, that yeah, yeah I never looked at it that way, but uh, yeah, you're probably right. Uh, it is uh, the, the the market has changed dramatically here and uh, and it's gotten very very hard for sure, but uh, yeah, no, so outside of the I guess the the rights trading business, uh, what what other parts would you, you know, is is pitch doing or is it, you know, is that sort of the majority of the business? Uh, Revenue-wise, it's the majority, but we have uh, four other arms to the business, mm -hmm. uh, sports documentaries. Um, so we are one of the leading doc makers in, in the sports space. In the last year or so, we've uh, produced the Pele doc for Netflix, the Andy Murray uh, doc for Amazon, uh, the All or Nothing uh, series for the Brazil football team for their Copper victory in 2019 right. so we've got um and then at the moment i think we've got uh, four or five um projects on the go with the likes of the zone sky netflix amazon so you know we're working with um 
with some of the big distributors around the world and creating some really fun sports films, mm-hmm. um, which which is you know quite complementary to our media rights business. Sure. Um, then outside of that, we uh, we work with um, uh, a whole load of brands on the sports sponsorship side of things. So recently hired Dan Kittle from the FA who ran commercial partnerships and he runs that division for us, mm-hmm. uh, which is a mix of sort of buy side and sell side sports sponsorship work. So we're currently working with the EPCR, which is, you know, the European Champions Cup rugby selling their title sponsorship. We are working with um, a bunch of other brands, advising them on their global sponsorship side of things. So that's an area of the business that is definitely growing for us. And we're, you know, I've got, when I sat down with uh, that team yesterday and, We've got quite an aggressive hiring plan and think that there's some good opportunities for us there. Um, we have uh, an events business as well, which has probably been the area that's been most affected by this is the last two years of COVID. So mm. we, I'm trying to think what, you know, our, our main client there is the Brazil national football team. So we take them, um, we, we run and manage all all of their friendlies. Um, you know who so, I, I just had uh, Philip from Kentaro on. Uh, he's the podcast which would be releasing just before you. And obviously, that's exactly what Kentaro did, you know, for a long, long exactly. time. Exactly. So, so effectively, we're quite so following, um, you know, Kentaro's sad demise, we acquired that uh, contract okay. from okay. from Kentaro. Or we, we took over that contract. So, yes, yes he created the idea and we've continued to run and operate it. Great to see. Great to see. That's a nice follow-up then here. It works well. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Well, it looks like you guys get your hands full there. And uh, with a team of 70 people there, that's, uh, yeah, you need to run, you need to make some money. Um, that's not a cheap setup, especially if they're all sitting in the UK. Uh, so wish you all the best in the continuous uh, success there. And we'll have another conversation on something I mentioned earlier, a little game we're doing here in Asia where I might need some help. Um, Sounds good. <laughs> now, before we kind of wrap it up here, um, I wanted to talk a bit about a couple of other things you're doing. Uh, I want to pick on a similar couple of investments you have, and then, of course, a few non-exec roles there, which are all equally interesting. So another you know, 10 or 15 minutes maybe to cover a few things here. So um, which one do you want to talk about? Play, sports, network, cage warrior, um, you know, marshmallow. Oh, oh. You've, you've invested in, in a host of interesting businesses here. Well, that's, I guess it's a sports one, so we'll keep it um, we'll keep it sport related. So, um, Play Sport Network, which is most commonly known as GCN, the Global Cycling Network, that was uh, been a, a great fun investment. We exited that to Discovery in uh, 2019. Uh, it was myself, uh, Andrew Croker, that's were right. Yeah, now I remember Andrew was talking about it too. Yeah, and we worked with an unbelievable entrepreneur, a guy called Simon Ware. Who um, set the business up, and it was just awesome because the business grew quick. I learned all about how to monetize YouTube, which I had no idea before, um, and you know, created a number of friends for life. And you know, we'll end up doing more things together, Simon, myself, Andrew, and, a, and, a, and another friend called Michael Lavelle, who who was also on the board, who was you know runs Citibank in Europe. So. That was that was great fun. I, I can't claim to be a cyclist or particularly interested in the the the, uh, the content as such, but I definitely learned about the business of monetizing uh, free to play video on the internet. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That now I recall that we had, I had some conversation, and Claude Rubal obviously had a little bit to do with uh, your success there, I guess. Uh, yeah, one of the first deals I think he helped broker was YouTube. Exactly. So Claude and Stephen Nuttall were, um, you know, were helpful to give us one of those uh, original creator slots on YouTube, and right. you know, unlike unlike many of the people out there, you know, that they were we were given uh, you know a grant of whatever it, the, the financial figure was. Most of the sort of the old school businesses, and I think probably Perform was guilty of this uh, with with the deal we did with Gold, just trousered the money and didn't really invest in the content. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, GCM pumped all of the money that Google had granted or YouTube had granted us into content and production and talent and more. And off the back of that, created a really successful business with, you know, across all of its social platforms, more than 10 million social followers. Yeah, amazing. Now let's let's go from from cycling to the Cage Warriors, which I'm assuming is MMA here. How do you get into that one? <laughs> uh, well, that that's again, that's really just part of the network. You know, Kaz Knight, who was an old client at Chelsea, he had started consulting for a guy called Graham that uh, was that was the CEO of this up and coming MMA promotion called Cage Warriors. Kaz then did a sort of a, a friends and family round to, to take the business to the next level. And, you know, there will be plenty of shareholders on that roster that you will have heard of, whether it's Mickey O'Rourke, Aidan Cooney, Richard Fitzgerald. Uh, I'm probably missing plenty of people out here, but mm. um, lots of people from the sports rights industry put, uh, put a few quid into it. And it, again, it's been a really good, um, a really good investment uh we're now i think you know we we went from doing three or four shows in our first year my understanding is we'll do something like 14 shows this year uh, across the uk scandinavia benelux and the us so it's uh it's been it's been great i mean i I have to say i'm not a particular fan of the uh of the end content again i'm not like (laughs) mma is not a sport that uh, I, I particularly like watching, but uh, you're a cricketer. I, I get that. Uh, yeah, we're a soft, <laughs> you know, soft touch cricketer. Now, cricket, football, and rugby, and a bit of golf will do for me. But yeah, I'm not really so much of a fight sports guy. But um, it's been um, it's been a, again a really good uh, a really good investment and one that will continue to grow. I hope. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, obviously, we launched Laurie Kickboxing, which. You know, it's, it's a slightly different sport. There's a lot of similarities about a fight sport, um, how you set it up and what you do around the world. And it's been, a, it's, a, it's an interesting experience. It's not, an, again, not an easy business, uh, not as easy to make money. Uh, I'm sure COVID hit them as much as it hit everyone else in the events business. So, you know, it's good to see that it's continuing to grow there. So, well, let's get back a bit into the into your world then of cricket, uh, which is one of your sort of non-exec roles, uh, I believe, with the England and Wales Cricket Board. Uh, there's a few things you did, including, I believe, one of the new events called The 100, right? Uh, tell us a bit about it. I know there's a big event. I read a bit about it, but, you know, I'd love to understand a bit more what exactly you were doing as well as, I guess, what the event is all about. Yeah, so I was in, uh, asked to join the board of the 100 uh, when it was being conceived probably three or four years ago. Um, and in the build-up to the launch of this new 100-ball sort of 2020-style product, City Franchise, mm-hmm. uh, was involved in uh, you know, providing a little bit of um, guidance, I guess, to the executive team led by Tom Harrison and Sanjay as to how to launch the product, 
um, you know, how to sell the tickets, how to liaise with the counties, etc., on this new on this new product, which was which was great. Sadly, the first year of it was um, was lost to COVID, but we we got it over the line last year in 2021. And at that time, I sort of transitioned out of the hundred board role into being the chairman of the Oval Invincibles, which is the franchise based at uh, the Oval Surrey's Cricket Ground. Mm-hmm. Um, which I just love because I've the one thing in my career I've probably never done is actually work on the sort of what I would call the professional side of, of, of or the sort of the performance side of sport. So actually, you know, sitting down with, you know, Alex Stewart, who's the director of cricket and Paul at Surrey and Paul Downton at Kent to help sort of select the coach and to think about, uh, you know, our team strategy and our pick strategy was was brilliant. And, we had a we had a really good first season. So we narrowly the men's team finished fourth, narrowly missing out on the playoffs, and the women's team uh, won it. So um, you know, I'm a you know one year in one one victory, one of the champions of women's sport. I keep telling everyone, but I'm laughed I'm laughed away when it said you had nothing to do with it, and the the women and the uh, coaching team were the were the uh, architects of the victory, which is entirely true. But uh, I do like to sort of um, pretend that I was. A tiny part in that victory, which I, which I no doubt wasn't, but um, it's, it's, it's been, it was great fun, and it was brilliant to see um, women's cricket in particular have such a big uh, impact on the, um, on, on the sort of sporting summer in the UK. Oh, that's awesome. Now, is Sixers the Sixers Cricket Club? That is, that is part of this, or this is separate? This is separate. This is a a, a chain of. Uh, what we call entertainment venues across oh, okay. the UK. So um, where you book, uh, it's a bit like temp in bowling uh, in a way where you would book a lane and you might have some food and drinks, except rather than booking a temp in bowling lane, you book a cricket net, which has a, a bowling simulator. So right. someone runs into a screen and bowls your ball like you're in a packed cricket stadium. It is brilliant fun. Um, okay. We're working with a couple of, a seasoned restaurant entrepreneurs who owned a chain called Mac and Wild. Uh, and again, we've put together a really, really good cap table, uh, likes of a few of us from Pitch, uh, Sir Andrew Strauss, who's the, um, you know, the interim uh, head of cricket at the ECB at the moment. Um, David Nash, a former um, Middlesex cricketer, who's got a really uh, impressive uh, sports hospitality and events business. Uh, Penny Hughes, the ex CEO of Coca-Cola in the UK. So we've got a good team behind these two very young, vibrant entrepreneurs. Uh, and we've just raised a bunch more money. And I think that will take us to six restaurants in the UK. Oh, wow. That's cool. Well, I, okay, well, I get the idea. Um, next time I'm in the UK, I'll go check it out. I'll, we'll have lunch there. <laughs> uh, no, no, it's fantastic. Oli, this was great. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, the journey here through your career and, and hearing all the stories from how it all started to, of course, uh, the highs of Perform to all the other things you're doing now. And uh, it sounds definitely you're having a lot of fun there, um, you know, building new businesses, making money, selling them, um, you know, and making more money here and there and, and reinvesting it into into new opportunities. So, uh Great to have that chat, and uh, I have plenty of ideas already how we follow up these, that conversation here. That's brilliant. Thanks so much for inviting me on, Marcus, and um, yeah, look forward to picking up on a few things in the next few days. For sure. All the best there, and uh, we'll talk soon. Brilliant. Thanks, Marcus. 
The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.